Good morning. On this holiday weekend, celebrating the birth of our nation, accompanied with exceptional trials, an extraordinary period of human history, a worldwide pandemic, a nation filled with societal unrest and even division. The question that comes to us, or should, as Christians, is where is God? Where is God with relation to the trouble, the suffering, the dying, the conflict, the chaos? Has he removed himself entirely? Has he forgotten about us? Where is our God? So with that question in mind, my subject this morning is the providence of God. The providence of God. Now that's, that's a huge, huge subject. And we can do nothing more than present some cursory thoughts, but it's very much my prayer that God will use those summary, broad, sweeping thoughts to move you to engage in more careful thought and study of the scripture, that your faith might be enlarged, and that your praise for God might be quickened. As is normally my method, we will examine the subject in a catechetical fashion, that is, by questions and answers. Question number one, what is divine providence? What is divine providence? First of all, what does the word providence mean? Have you ever tried to define it? If I were to call on you and ask you to stand and explain to this congregation what providence is, what would you say? Dictionary.com offers three statements by way of definition. Number one, providence is the foreseeing care and guidance of God or nature. Strike that. It is the foreseeing care and guidance of God over the creatures of the earth. Definition number two, providence is God, especially when conceived as omnisciently directing the universe and the affairs of humankind with wise benevolence. It's not bad. 
And then definition number three, providence is a manifestation of divine care or direction. Now that's how the dictionary defines providence. But how do we, as the people of God and those hopefully regulated by the Bible, how do we define providence? Well, first of all, we find a great deal of help in seeking to give definition to biblical ideas, biblical doctrines, in what we call a confession of faith. This church subscribes to the Baptist Confession of 1689. It'd probably be a bit presumptuous of me to assume that all of you know what a confession of faith is. I grew up in church. My church had no confession of faith. We had a one-page statement of faith, but a confession of faith. I don't recall ever hearing of such a thing until I went away to college. What is a confession of faith? Well, a confession of faith is an uninspired human writing. It is an attempt to collect and collate what the Bible as a whole teaches on the most vital of subjects. Now, because a confession is man-written and interpretive, it's not infallible. It should never be used as the final word in any matter. I've come to think that our confession is actually wrong in a couple of important points. But even if I'm right, that would not negate the valuable instruction found in the Baptist Confession of 1689. It's an incredible document. It covers the most important Bible doctrines and practices. And we unashamedly offer the 1689 as a statement of what we believe the Bible teaches. So, what does our confession teach about the providence of God? I want to read two paragraphs. Number one. This is found in chapter 5 of our confession. God, the good creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom, does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures and things, from the greatest even to the least. And he does this by his most wise and holy providence. And he does it to the end for which they were created, according unto his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will. And he does it to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, his power, justice, infinite goodness, 
and mercy. <laughs> you want something to think about that will take all afternoon or maybe the rest of your life? Well, that's it. Paragraph two. Although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause, all things come to pass immutably and infallibly, so that there is not anything befalls any by chance or without his providence. Yet by the same providence, he orders them to happen, every event to happen according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingently. Look that up. Meditate on it. What this means is that the God who created the world did not leave the world after he created it. God made the world and everything the world contains, and he remains active in the universe. He created it, and he stayed with it to order and control, to uphold, to bring to pass all his holy will. God's activity in the creation might be understood in three respects. Number one, God maintains the existence of all things, upholding all things by the word of his power. God keeps what he made in existence by the direct impartation of his own power. Secondly, God directs all events and the happenings, including the action of men and angels and nations. Third, God works in and above all things, all events, to bring each created thing to the end, the conclusion, for which he created it. God made the world on purpose. He had a design for everything he made, everything he made, including things that I despise, like spiders and snakes. Where did they come from? They came from the good hand of God. He created them. He designed them. He had a purpose, not just for spiders in general, for every spider. Now, don't look, but there's spiders in this building that get your attention. There's spiders in this building. And every one of them is upheld by God and serves the purpose of God and is in this building because God decreed that it would be in this building. Maybe God decreed that I'll kill it if I see it. But it's in this building, not by accident. God is continually at work in his world to bring each created thing to its predetermined 
end. You say, that's too fantastic. There's spiders all over the world. Every building has spiders. Every forest has wild animals and snakes and birds. And you mean to tell me that God created them all, put them there, and has a purpose for each one? That's impossible. If you think that, you forget who our God is. He's an infinite being, infinite in power, infinite in wisdom, and infinite in his presence. Everything that exists, exists in the presence of God. This is what we mean by providence, okay? That's question number one. What is providence? Question number two, does the Bible teach that? See, it's one thing for the dictionary to define it. It's another thing for our confession to write about it. But the all-important question is, does the Word of God teach it? Well, I wouldn't be preaching on it if it didn't. But yes, the Bible teaches the doctrine of providence. In fact, the Old Testament could be understood as a history of providence. In the New Testament, you have a lot of prescribed doctrine, intricate details about doctrine. But the Old Testament is largely a chronicle of divine providence. Now, The word providence is not found in the Bible, as far as I know. Now, some modern translation may have it somewhere, but as far as I know, the word providence is not in the Bible. But the doctrine of providence, the reality of providence, is in the Bible. Part of my current Bible reading has me in the book of Esther. You want to see providence. Read Esther chapter 6. The word God is not found in the book of Esther, much less the word providence. But the reality of providence is described throughout the book of Esther, but particularly in Esther chapter 6. But one of the most important demonstrations of providence is found in the account that was read earlier from Acts chapter 2. So please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. And we'll read beginning in verse 22. Acts 2, verse 22. Men of Israel hear these words. This is Peter preaching to the multitudes in the streets of Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Men of Israel hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you 
by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Now please observe with me the following aspects of providence in this very important historical record. First of all, there is a reference to what is called extraordinary providence. Extraordinary providence provided proof as to the heavenly origin of Jesus and of his work, and did so by means of what we refer to as miracles. Verse 22, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst as you yourselves also know. Now, providence works by what we refer to as ordinary acts of providence and by extraordinary works of providence. God did both in the Bible. God has done both in history. And I believe that God is still doing both today. God provided unmistakable evidence as to that special anointing belonging to Jesus. God gave evidence of that by extraordinary providences, by miracles. The sick were healed. The blind were made to see. The hungry were fed. Storms were stilled. Even the dead were returned to life. Those events don't ordinarily happen, but they happen under the ministry of Jesus. They happen not by second causes. They happen by the direct imposition of his will and power as God. Providence, or God, worked miracles, wonders, and signs to show unmistakably that Jesus was the Messiah. And the people knew it to be so. They saw it. They witnessed extraordinary providences. God also displayed his complete satisfaction with the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross by the extraordinary providence of the resurrection. Now, we often think that if God would perform miracles like that in our day, people would believe. 
If they saw graves open and dead people coming out, if they saw cancer patients healed, if the COVID-19 just went away because people prayed, if people could see miracles, they would believe. No, they wouldn't. These people saw the miracles. Yet notwithstanding these providential displays of providence, of God's hand on Jesus, marking him out as the promised one in the Old Testament, the unique gift of God, the Savior. The people saw it, and yet they hated him. They hated him. They didn't just refuse to believe. They hated Jesus. And out of the wickedness of their hearts, they crucified him. Verse 23b, you have taken this one through whom God displayed his power and mercy. You have taken by lawless hands and you've crucified him. You put him to death. Now, it's very important to recognize that the malicious treatment of Jesus was entirely voluntary, entirely voluntary on the part of the Jewish leaders. They were jealous of him. They wanted for themselves the honor and the awe that the crowds were giving to Jesus. And so they not only tried to have him put to death, they insidiously convinced the ordinary people in Israel to hate him too and to call for his execution. God did not make them do that. God did not put the hatred for Jesus in their hearts. He did not plant the idea of execution in their hearts. It was the product of their own depravity. Even though Jesus did only good, spoke only truth, only good, only truth, he was hated, he was rejected, he was put to death on the cross. And beloved, that was the worst sin ever committed in the history of the world. It was the ultimate unveiling of the human heart. The ultimate proof of man's depravity. And if you had been there, if I had been there, we would have concurred. We would have said, crucify him. The third thing about providence in this passage, and the ultimate thing, all of this happened just as God decreed and enabled it to happen. Verse 23a, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge 
of God. God knowing the evil of the human heart. God knowing how desperately people hate him. And you see what happened to Jesus is actually an unveiling of man's hatred for God. It was God who did the miracles. It was God who gave the extraordinary displays of power and majesty. It was God that was hated. God knew that. He knew how desperately people hate him and wish they could do away with him. So God provided them the opportunity. God came in the form of human flesh. He lived among them, and yet in human form, he displayed his glory. He did good. He did powerful things. Things that nobody had ever seen before. He did merciful things. He spoke truth. Jesus is God, and he showed the glory of God, though in human form. And man could get their hands on human form. And out of hatred for God, they seized Jesus and put him to death. They were expressing their hatred for God. Well, was God surprised? You see, we might look at these events and say, oh, no, that's not what God planned. That's that's not what God wanted. God must have been terrified to see what the people were doing to his son. Now, beloved, God not only knew this would happen, God planned for this to happen. He did not cause men to hate him, but he permitted them the opportunity to show their hatred. And it was in this way that God executed his own eternal plan of redemption. His son, well, his son was subjected to a trial. He was found guilty in accord with the prejudice of the human heart against God. He was executed as though he was a desperately evil man. But in this grave miscarriage of justice, we not only have the evidence that condemns the human race, man's insidious hatred for God, we have the justification for hell. In this event, God is just to condemn the human race to everlasting wrath. But we also have the free grace of God that worked through the mockery and injustice to actually condemn Jesus. The people condemned him wrongly, but in their mock trial, God imputed to his son the real sins of his people. And on account of the imputation of our sin to him, God declared him guilty 
And on the cross, as men were acting out their hatred for God, God displayed his hatred for sin. And he poured upon his son the wrath that the sins of his people deserve. And we come away from the cross with a bitter taste in our mouths concerning the wickedness of the human heart, but we also come away from the cross with our hands held high. Praise you, O God, for free grace and substitutionary redemption. As humans were acting out their hatred for God, doing their utmost against God, God was at work orchestrating the entire event to accomplish his eternal plan for the salvation of the world. Remember, Jesus is called the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. What's providence? It's God controlling all things. Surely not bad things, yes. This was the worst thing that has ever happened in human history as to the action of the men. But God was working in this. God was controlling this to bring about his purpose of grace. It couldn't happen until this day, this place, Remember how often the people hated Jesus and tried to put him to death? And what does the Bible say? They couldn't because his time had not yet come. God had a time for this. He had a place for this. Jesus was untouchable, invincible, until the time and occasion ordained by God. But when that hour came, God permitted them to execute their malice. But it was all as he had planned and decreed. And so we have providence controlling, bringing to pass the free acts of men in the gravest of all sins in order to accomplish his eternal and saving purpose. Here in the actual text of Scripture, we see what providence is, we see what providence does. The question is, does the Bible teach the doctrine of providence? Yes, it does. Providence is God controlling all things in order to bring about his sovereign will. One of the most important statements on providence is Ephesians 1 and verse 11. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel 
of his own will. Well, question number three. How extensive is the providential control of God? How extensive? How far does it reach? Well, listen again to our confession. God, the good creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom, does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence to the end for which they were created. Ponder this, from the greatest even to the least. Whatever exists in the world, any part, every part of the world, in the universe above, in the solar system, whatever exists in this moment, exists not only because God originally created it or its species, but because God wills that it would exist right now. And he gives it its existence. That's true of big things, it's true of small things. Big things, huge things, like the flood that destroyed the entire human race except for the family of Noah. It's also true of the little sparrow. Jesus said a little sparrow doesn't fall to the ground without your heavenly father. Out in the woods, there's a sparrow dying. Nobody knows. Nobody cares. But God does. God created that sparrow. And God determined that that sparrow would live until now. Then it would die. It's God who gave rise to a microscopic virus that kills hundreds of thousands of people throughout the world and escapes human control. The devil didn't do that. God did that. Providence rules over all things according to God's holy will. How extensive is the providence of God? Turn to Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 33. Proverbs 16, 33. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision from the Lord. The lot is the die is cast. People engage in games of chance. They throw the dice. 
It looks like chance. It looks like luck to us. Never is. Never is. God controls it. When I was a kid choosing baseball teams, we had various methods of choosing baseball teams. It was supposed to be chance. As far as we were concerned, it was, but it was never chance. That's a word you can strike from your vocabulary. Chance is providence as we interpret it. Chance events are always acts of God. Every lottery winner and loser happens according to the sovereignty of God. You say, is the lottery okay? I didn't say it was okay. I just said the outcome was according to the sovereign will of God. What seems like chance to us, what looks like accident to us, is in fact the outworking of God's perfect and holy will. How extensive is providence. It reaches to the most mundane, inconsequential events of history. But it also reaches to the highest events. God rules over nations. He raises up kings like Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus. And he causes pandemics. God creates humans. Now I want you to hear this very well. and I'm going to end reasonably soon. (laughs) But I want you to hear this and I want you to grip it. I have no intention of getting involved in politics, but I must declare truth. God creates humans and God makes humans to differ from one another. We're all the same. No, we're not. There is the sameness, but there is also diversity and difference. Two texts. First, Acts 17, verse 26. Look at Acts 17, 26. Very important text. God, God has made from one blood, one father, Adam, every nation to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. One origin, one blood, One common nature, many nations, many ethnicities, many races, and it's all according to the sovereign decree of God. People live at different points in history in different places in the world, and it's all according to the sovereign appointment of God. He predetermines our boundaries. Now turn to 1 Samuel chapter 2. 
1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Okay, Old Testament. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. The Lord kills and makes alive. We've seen that, right? The Lord kills and makes alive. Last week we had the birth of Emily. We had the death of our precious Lolly. Just happenstance, just ordinary life happening. No, no, it's God working. God giving life, God taking life. God brings down to the grave and he brings up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up. The Lord does that. Listen, it is God who appoints differences among human beings. God decrees both advantages and disadvantages. God does not will that we should all be the same or look the same. It's not God's will that we possess the same degree of intelligence or talent or property. Okay? God doesn't decree that. God doesn't give us all the same. He gives advantages. God gives disadvantages. It's God's prerogative. He is God. Now, regardless of the differences, externally, all of us are the image bearers of God and possess a certain dignity because we bear God's likeness. Even if we fall into the depths of sin, we're still human beings. We are the image of God in the earth. There is dignity in that. At the same time, we were made to the same blood, descendant, from the same fallen father. We have the same heart. So all human beings, regardless of who they are or where they are, what their intelligence, talent, or property levels may be, all human beings have both dignity and depravity. Okay, Dignity and depravity. But we're different. And God uses our differences to bring to light our sin, our pride, the absence of love for our neighbor. It's God's will that those who possess advantages would use those advantages to provide and protect those who have less. And it's God's will that those who are given more disadvantages would serve him gratefully with what they do have. But that's not what we do 
the tendency of the advantaged is to be prejudiced against the disadvantaged, lord over them, oppress them. That's what majorities do to minorities. With majority status comes power. The opportunity to uphold the weak, the disadvantaged, the minority. That's not what we do. We press them down. We lord over them. The tendency of the disadvantaged is to envy the advantaged and to hate them for their advantages and to complain about the condition into which God casts them. In both of those tendencies, of the advantaged and the disadvantaged, advantaged, both are evil, and God will call both into judgment. Beloved, we must grasp and hold tightly to the reality that God sets the bounds of our habitation. God determines our lot. It is for us to thank Him for what we have and trust Him for what we need and live where we are according to his will and for his honor. I want to share a little secret with you. There's a lot of fuss today over who has advantages and who are the disadvantaged and how can we make them equal. No matter who we are, where we are, God honors humility and diligence. That's what God honors. Whether you have advantage or disadvantage, doesn't matter. What God honors is humility and diligence. And when I say that God honors, I don't mean the providence will provide a clear and easy path if you were humble and work hard. But here's what I do mean. Here's what I do mean. Providence will provide an upward path, an upward path for the humble and the diligent. God lifts up the humble And he cast down the proud. You see that throughout the Bible. Think of Joseph. Joseph was born with great advantage. I think Joseph became proud of his advantage. His brothers were born into great advantage, but not as great advantage as Joseph, because Joseph's father loved him best. That's a stupid thing for a father to let their children know. He gave him a coat 
of many colors that distinguished him. And I think Joseph got a whole proud about that. His brothers hated him, and they were going to kill him, but providence intervened, and he was sold into slavery. So he went from advantage to disadvantage, right? He was taken to a foreign country. He was taken to Egypt. He was sold as a slave, but he was bought by a man named Potiphar, who was in a position of authority. And Joseph worked hard. He was diligent as a slave, and he was exalted. He had advantage again. Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him. He was faithful to God. He rejected. She lied about him, falsely accused. He's cast into prison for the better part of a decade. He goes from advantage to disadvantage. Providence. He's disadvantaged. He's in a prison. He's forgotten. No, he's not. He's not forgotten. God's just waiting his time. God gives him a gift. It's a gift of interpreting dreams. And God uses that talent, that gift, to exalt him and to bring him not only out of prison, but to bring him into a place, not only of national prominence, world prominence. And God uses him to save his father his father's house, and his brothers. And he can say to them, you meant it to me for evil. God meant it for good. God lifts up the humble. You say, but that doesn't happen today. Oh, yes, it does. God hasn't changed. Recently, I was listening to an interview with Ben Carson. You know who Ben Carson is, right? He was born in great disadvantage. Single parent home in the ghetto of Philadelphia. He was a minority. He was poor. His mother worked three jobs. He didn't like school. He was a bad student. He made the worst grades in his class. But God gave him the advantage of a wise and perhaps a godly mother. And she said, Ben, turn off the TV. I want you to read these books. She gave him a stack of books. I want you to read these books. Oh, Mom, it'll take me for... He read them. And as he read them, he fell in love with learning. And his mind grew. And suddenly, he went from being the worst student to the best student. And he graduates with honors. And he gets a scholarship to Yale. And he becomes the foremost pediatric neosurgeon in the world. And is now a member of the president's cabinet. He was born. God providentially assigned him disadvantage. But he was humble and he was diligent. And God lifted him up.
Beloved God is doing two things in the world. Always. He's doing two things. He's preparing the wicked for judgment. And he's bringing his own humble, believing people to great good. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. He's doing that. The wicked often think that providence is on their side. But with every success that providence gives to the wicked, it's another nail in the coffin of their damnation. Whatever makes them proud and self-sufficient is a nail in their coffin. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. And often it doesn't look like good. (laughs) Being sold into slavery, it didn't look like good. Being left in a prison cell for seven years, that didn't look like good. But it was. And then in the end, the good was memorialized for all history to see and admire. Beloved, which camp are you in? The camp fighting against God? Proud? Stubborn? Chasing the lust of the flesh? Is that where you are? I don't care whether you have disadvantage or advantage, that will end you in ruin. Or are you among the humble lot that repent of their sins and follow Jesus with a desperate kind of faith? Save me, Lord, or I'll die. I'm one of those who screams, crucify him, crucify him. And I'll return to that if you don't keep me. Oh, save me, Savior, or I die. That's who you are. Whether you seem to be at advantage or disadvantage, it's all going to turn out wonderfully well for you. In this world and in the world to come. Our God reigns. What's happening in the world? I don't know. I don't know what God's doing. But I know God's doing it. I know God's doing it. And I'm content with that. Whatever he does. Is it judgment? Could be. Looks like judgment to me. But he's my father. I'm reconciled to him by the death of his son. I'm at peace. If it's judgment, if that's God's will, let it come. I'm safe, and I hope you are. But I hope it's not judgment. I hope it's a preparation for a revival. You say, oh, it couldn't be that. Oh, yeah, it could. He's our God. He can do whatever he pleases. Just make sure you're on his side. Okay? Let's pray.
Father, it's so tempting, so easy for us to be controlled by circumstances and appearances and voices in the world as speak lies, but speak lies loudly and convincingly. Oh, Father, make us to be more than, more than we've ever been, believers of your word, trusters in your sovereign power and mercy. Father, may we all be found in that great day to be lovers of God, the called according to your purpose. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.